Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, March 11th, 2014. All right, today is going to be a modified format for Fighting for the Faith. Both segments work together. They are a unit. We'll say that up front. Trusting that you will see the connection between the two. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down and stop and compare what people are saying and doing nowadays. We have to kind of throw that in there. In the name of God to what God's Word says in context, rightly understood. So, uh, yeah. All right. So we've been in the the throes of yet another Driscoll scandal. And uh, we covered it yesterday. And we're going to cover it again today. And um, we're going to do something a little bit different. And that is is that... uh, um, I have the privilege today of interviewing Janet Mefford of uh, you know the Janet Mefford program on the Salem Radio Network, and uh, she was made famous if you think back to uh, November of last year, because she's the gal who uh, on her program interviewed Mark Driscoll and and called him out publicly regarding the plagiarism in his book. Um, you know, the current book was it, you know, I forget the name of it about, uh, whether or not there will be a funeral in Christianity. She, you know, noted that there were plagiarized portions of it and, uh, and it exploded into a huge month long ordeal, uh, with finally, uh, Mars Hill admitting that there were uh, well, mistakes that were made. And now they're in the process of quietly going back through Mark Driscoll's books and citing authors that weren't cited. And, um, and now, uh, here we are in the month of March, and yet another scandal is broken, and that is uh, the revelation that Mark Driscoll, um, <clears throat> well, how should we put this? Mars Hill uh, spent money, you know, tithes and offering money uh, that was used to make Mark Driscoll a New York Times bestselling author. And uh, and we've been covering that scandal for the past few days. And uh, Janet Mefford was kind enough to uh, you know come on the program today. In fact, I interviewed her earlier. And so what we're going to do today is we're going we're going to begin with my interview with Janet Mefford uh, regarding the Mark Driscoll scandal. And uh, she was just 
an absolute joy to interview and uh, really hoping that, you know, I can interview her again. A smart, smart lady and a great uh, sister in Christ and uh, and very bold, very brave. And I, I just have the deepest respect for her, you know, out there in, in the uh, Christian media. She is literally and I, and I mean this. She's one of my heroes. And so, um, you know, hopefully I didn't sound starstruck when uh, when I was interviewing her. But uh, we're going to start with that. And when we're done with that interview, we'll take our first break. And then when we come back, we have an extended uh, interview. I interviewed uh, Pastor Matt Richard of uh, Zion Lutheran Church in uh, in Gwinner, North Dakota. And, uh, you know, I had to look you know, the name of his congregation here. And uh, he has a blog post out there that has to do with, um, well, sound doctrine and false doctrine and the dangers of false doctrine and how much false doctrine and kind of the idea that, the, you know, in evangelicalism, the person who points out the fact that there's false doctrine uh, is oftentimes the one who's accused of being a hater, of being divisive, of somehow doing something terrible to the body of Christ. And uh, and so I uh, interviewed uh, Pastor Matt Richard regarding an article that he wrote, a blog post, and I'll put the link up uh, for that article for today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. You can find it at fightingforthefaith.com. And uh, and you'll find that our conversation, uh, we got a little off track at, uh, at a couple of points, but uh, what we got off track on, what it's good that we got off track. So that's how we're going to do today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. There will not be a sermon review. So <laughs> it's like, if I have to talk about Mark Driscoll again, at least I don't have to do a sermon review. And it takes a lot of work to do the sermon reviews here at Fighting for the Faith. And so I don't mind having a day off from the sermon review. And I think some of you uh, may not mind the fact that I'm not doing a bad sermon review today either. So <clears throat> we're going to get right into it. And uh, and so we'll get right to it. And here is the audio of my interview recorded earlier today with Janet Mefford regarding the Mark Driscoll scandal. Here we go. All right. On the line, I have uh, Janet Mefford from the uh, Janet Mefford Show, and I've invited her on Fighting for the Faith to come and talk about uh, the latest Mark Driscoll controversy uh, regarding his uh, being a New York Times bestselling author and uh, the wake of destruction that's uh, happened as a result of how that is uh, happening. So, uh, Janet, thanks for coming on uh, Fighting for the Faith. Oh, Chris, it's my honor. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so this is, uh, you know, the second major uh, scandal regarding Mark Driscoll in just a few months. And um, let me ask you this question. As a journalist and as a Christian, so you might actually consider, uh, you know, answering this question two different ways. Why are the two latest Driscoll scandals important? I mean, there's the, the people I've talked to, and I, I get a lot of flack from people on, out on social media basically saying, you know, listen, this doesn't matter. It's not that big of a deal. Um, why do you think this is an important story? Well, I think both of the scandals are important stories, primarily because this speaks to a terrific corruption uh, in the ministry of Mark Driscoll, I mean, if you look at First Timothy chapter three and Titus chapter one, which speaks to the qualifications of elders and pastors, one of those qualifications is being beyond reproach, above reproach. And so, when we're looking at what's happening here, first of all, on the plagiarism issue, the fact that Mark Driscoll has now been shown to have plagiarized or improperly cited in, I think it's up to seven books now. I had uncovered four, mm. but there were three additional that I believe uh, were Warren Throckmorton's uncovering. Um, you know, 
that is an incredible story in and of itself. It's also been shown that he has plagiarized in a Tim Keller sermon, and from what I understand, there may be more of that coming out. Um, but it speaks to a lot of issues. Primarily, it speaks to an integrity issue. Um, when I had Mark Driscoll on my show and I was talking to him about his plagiarism, I had pointed out, you know, Romans 2's admonitions that are you preaching to people not to steal and you steal? And that was exactly what he did. He has, on his frequently asked questions portion of his website, he talks about uh, the, the, the whole issue of plagiarism, and if you use Mark's sermons and you don't cite it, that's plagiarism. So he's very tough on people who he thinks are plagiarizing him, even went after a church at one point that was using the Mars Hill logo and then mm. subsequently dropped that. But he was being completely hypocritical. He was telling people not to plagiarize while he was doing it himself. He wasn't honest about it when he was on my show and doing the interview. He was not honest about it. Um, and it's plagiarism, and a lot of people say that plagiarism, what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. It's lying. It's stealing. It's fraud. And for him, it's also hypocrisy. And it speaks to an integrity issue. And it also speaks to something that will get you fired if you're a journalist or if you're in academia for much, much less than this guy has done. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing on the plagiarism issue. On the issue of spending $210,000 at least to put your, your plagiarized book, Real Marriage, on the New York Times bestseller list, again, that's an integrity issue. It's a cover-up issue because most of his church didn't know what was going on. And it just speaks to pride. It speaks to arrogance. It speaks to, I want my book to be seen as a bestseller, to make me look better, to be able to sell more books and continue the whole you know, promoting myself thing. It, it, it fundamentally, Chris, I really think it comes down to a character issue. Right. And is this man really qualified, biblically speaking, to be a pastor of a church that claims to preach Jesus Christ? That's what people in Marcel have got to decide for themselves. But from my vantage point, it's pretty darn clear he's not qualified. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I, I'm not going to disagree with your opinion. You know, uh, some of the criticism I've received, you know, the, the people have come out of the woodwork and said, listen, why are you making such a big deal about the $210,000? It was a marketing expense. They were marketing the book. I mean, do you see this as just a, a marketing expense? And you know, keep in mind, it was Mars Hill that actually, you know, paid this uh, this resource marketing company to make him a New York Times bestseller, and so the issue of uh, you know where would, where did the monies come from? Was it through ties and offerings and stuff like this? Is this a legitimate marketing expense? No, it's completely unethical. And if you go back, you can Google this article. I know I've put it up on social media, and others have as well. Forbes magazine did an article on Result Source and on this issue of buying your way onto the New York Times bestseller list, they called it a laundering operation. This is not marketing. Marketing is you put out press releases, you try to get interviews for your book, you try to get publicity for your book, so people will legitimately go out and be interested in the book and buy it organically. Marketing is not taking hundreds of thousands of dollars and secretly ensuring that people buy it to uh, to put you on the New York Times bestseller list, it's it speaks to the lameness of the book, not to the greatness of the book, because it's cheating. It's just completely unethical. Right. Yeah, I, I don't see it as a valid marketing expense at all. I mean, I've actually you know been a marketing executive, and you know the, the, you, you don't engage in underhanded, shady, uh, you know, unethical uh, means to market something, and, and unless of course you have no conscience. 
Um, right. Then let me ask you this, okay? Um, yesterday, I, I, I've noticed on your uh, on your Twitter feed, you've really uh, kept up with a lot of the different uh, news stories that have come out regarding this, as well as blog posts and things like that. Yesterday, the Christian Post reported that Driscoll had an apologetic tone. This is a direct quote: "Had an apologetic tone during his Sunday sermon." Um, isn't that enough for him to have an apologetic tone? I mean, clearly, I mean, he's super sorry, and he had an apologetic tone. What do you think of that particular post and the video that they linked to, you know, which demonstrating that uh, Mark Driscoll had an apologetic tone? I think the Christian Post is turning into Pravda, first of all. Um, the, the, the sermon, it's, a, it's just becoming a PR uh vehicle for Mars Hill Church. I mean, they were the same site that had run something about Mars Hill donating coats to the homeless during the whole plagiarism scandal. <laughs> um, one of the th- it's true. I wish it weren't true, but it, it actually is true. Um, this issue of him having an apologetic tone, first of all, from what I have been told, Mark Driscoll didn't even show up in his church on Sunday to preach in the wake of this scandal. So it wasn't that he had an apologetic tone on Sunday after the results or scandal broke. It was, it was a link to other sermons that he's done. They did not do any substantive coverage of the results or scandal. They mentioned it, and then they just kind of went on and gave a one-sided, basically, press release on behalf of Marshall Church, if you take out that one paragraph talking about the, um, the scandal itself. So I... I there hasn't been coverage. And that, you know, Chris, that's another thing, a complaint that I've got. I think that the Christian media, except for World Magazine, and, and, and I'm speaking like some of these news sites that are supposed to be covering Christian news, I think they have done a lousy job on this story. I think the Christian media largely has dropped the ball on this story, both of these stories. And I think that that speaks to um, something that is maybe even more troubling than what we've been talking about, because... Every Christian ought to be outraged and scandalized by what Mark Driscoll has done, both with the plagiarism and with the results source story. The fact that you're having to read about it uh, after World broke it, God bless them, they did a fantastic job. But you have to read about it in the L.A. Times and the Seattle media. You know, where is the Christian media on this? I, I, we're doing it, you're doing it, Chris, um, and I'm doing it on my show, but where are the rest of them? That's what I want to know. Yeah, I mean... The, the the thing that is troubling for me, um, and there's actually on a lot of different levels, this this story and the repeated scandals with Driscoll. Now I've been covering Driscoll for for years now, and I just look at the plagiarism scandal and the New York Times scandal as just two of the latest scandals regarding Driscoll. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, he was disqualified from being a pastor years ago, and that and the nail in the coffin should have been the fact that he was uh, driving the getaway car at Elephant Room 2 and trying to smuggle uh, T.D. Jakes into the evangelical mainstream um, and, and declare his uh, doctrine of God to be okay when it's not. I mean, Jakes was playing games, and you know, he admitted that he believes in the doctrine of the Trinity, at least God in three persons, if by persons you, need, you mean manifestations. And anybody with theological training knows that he's playing games and, and is basically trying to have his cake and eat it too and wasn't confessing the doctrine of the Trinity. He didn't repent of that. Um, and then, you know, I think back to, you know, a few years ago when uh, it was actually leaked to us, a link to the audio of uh, him telling a group of pastors that there's a 
pile of bodies behind the Mars Hill bus, and with God's grace, it'll be a mountain before he's done. I've never heard a pastor say anything like this. And yet, there's, there's, I've never seen any repentance on his part, and I, I, I don't see any way in which the man is qualified to be a pastor, but it's worse than that. He's actually... Uh, marketing himself for years now as a pastor to pastors. He's a leader to leaders. And so he's been busy over the past decade creating little Mark Driscoll's who are church planters and, and pastors all across the country. And I don't see that that is a good thing at all. I, it really, really worries me. I mean, what do you think about the idea of having Mark Driscoll clones all over the country basically buying into his leadership methods and his, and his accountability um, structure? It's scary. It's really scary. And you know what, Chris, what really is disturbing about it is it ends up changing what the world thinks Christianity is. And that may be the biggest scandal of all because it's become so widespread. You know, I was watching a a video last night with some uh, celebrity pastors in it, and I just shook my head in, in absolute despair because the way these people, I was really looking at how the people were acting in the audience, and I, I say audience explicitly, intentionally, I say audience instead yeah. of congregation. There is such a worship mentality, not of Jesus, yeah. but of the guy. And that's the disease of the age, and it is killing us. It is absolutely killing us. I'm old enough to remember the era before the celebrity pastor. And boy, uh, you know. Things have sure changed over the years, but not for the better. It's not about the Word of God and the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Word of God over us, directing us what we ought to be doing to obey the Lord. It's about the celebrity, and the celebrity can do no wrong. That's the disease that we're all infected with, and those of us, like you, Chris, who are standing up and saying this is wrong, often become the villains. Yeah. It's not the guy doing the lying and the stealing and the fraud and the hypocrisy and the greed. He's not the problem, Chris. You're the problem. I'm the problem. We're the bad guys. We're the ones who need to be shut down, and we're the ones who are being ungodly. And everything is upside down. It's it's awful. It's really, really awful to behold. Yeah, and and yet Scripture is so clear on this. What the, the, I mean, there's the, when it comes to the office of pastor, and biblically. It is described as an office, and God is the one who calls people to that office, and there's specific duties that go with that office. And what these guys have done is, is on both counts regarding the qualifications to be a pastor, there are moral qualifications that speak to the character of the man, and there are doctrinal qualifications that speak to the message that's to be preached by the man in that office. And, uh, and so many times with these celebrity pastors, number one, they do not meet the moral qualifications or they, mis- they morally disqualify themselves, you know, and, and yet nothing is done. And doctrinally, nobody cares. It doesn't matter yeah. if they're scratching, itching ears. It doesn't matter if they're twisting God's word. What, all that matters is that they're able to draw a large crowd. And everybody points to that and see, say, see, they're building the kingdom of God. Look at your dinky little church of 100 people. You guys are the problem. He's the solution because he's able to draw a large crowd. And they don't understand that 
number one, the people who are show, the crowd that's showing up to hear this man, they're not hearing the gospel. Number two, the man who's preaching whatever it is that's being preached in those churches, he's not even morally qualified to be a pastor anyway, and it doesn't matter. And I'm convinced at this point with Mark Driscoll that even if he were caught sleeping with a prostitute, he would blame it on somebody else and his board of, of accountability advisors would find a way to spin it. You know, and basically say, oh, he had a momentary lapse of judgment. Uh, but we appreciate the way that he's, that he's conducted himself during our investigation, and, and we can see his heart. And we believe that there's going to be a great, uh, you know, harvest of souls, uh, you know, as a result of his, of his apologetic tone or something like that. I, I think we're to that point. Yeah. Well, it, it speaks to the antinomianism of our day. Um, I hear this all the time. If some big celebrity does something that is unbiblical or, as you said, morally disqualifies him from ministry, the first word out of the mouth of their followers is grace. Don't you believe in forgiveness? Don't you believe in restoration? I mean, now that he's done something wrong, God can really use him. And what I would say to that is that's not biblical. First of all, yes, there's grace. Yes, there's forgiveness for the repentant, sorrowful sinner. Right. There's repentance for the the, the repentant sinner, not the sinner who says, I'm stonewalling, I'm not going to speak to it, I'm not going to apologize, I'm going to justify it, I'm going to hide behind the skirts, like Driscoll has done, of the publishing companies and of my board of accountability, and I'm going to run away, when it, like Brave Sir Robin, when it's time to show up at my church on Sunday to preach. That's not repentance at all. I mean, this guy, back to the plagiarism thing, he came out in December through Tyndale House. He didn't come out on his own and say, I'm sorry. He said mistakes were made, and I take responsibility for one book. There are six others he has said nothing about. His board has said nothing about. These people are not being accountable to the people. It's, it's you know, and the people, honestly, I, and I've had people say this, Chris, to me, which is you wonder how much the celebrity pastor phenomenon really is a judgment on the church rather than a sign of grace. Yeah, And the reason people have said that is you say people who sit there and listen to this and yet own Bibles, presumably, and have Google searches available on their Internet, and sit there under somebody like that and excuse away all the stuff you've mentioned before and just go, oh, you know, he's a cussing pastor, that's fine. Oh, he has porno visions, that's fine. Oh, he's just kind of edgy. He's irreverent. Isn't that cool? We're going to reach the culture. And eventually it comes to bite you, because if you overlook character issues, those things don't go away. They just ramp up. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know. It, it's, it's a difficult thing to speak to, but it is definitely... Uh, definitely something we need to grieve about. I really think so. Yeah, I, I, you know, my concern is, you know, as I read the Olivet Discourse, you know, Jesus talks about in the last days that because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many would grow cold. And I think lawlessness uh, is like the word that captures the zeitgeist of today's major mainstream evangelicalism. There is absolutely no concept of sin sorrow for it, repentance, and Christ bleeding and dying for it. Everybody's so caught up in this, you know, that Jesus is your buddy and he's about ready to reveal your grand purpose for your life, as if that's some, you know, making a decision to discover your purpose is somehow 
uh, synonymous with repentance and the forgiveness of sins. We've lost sight of the of the true message of the gospel, and we've lost sight of the real Jesus who really bled and died to save us from slavery to sin, death, and the devil. And we're in all these celebrity churches are growing at the expense of the truth rather than because of it. Well, and what happens, and I've said this about the church growth movement for a long time, when you have people raised in an environment who really don't know the Word of God because they're not taught the Word of God expositionally week to week in some of these churches, not all, but some of them, they're not doing expositional preaching, then what happens is these people don't develop any biblical discernment. (laughs) And it's kind of a catch-22 if you don't have a biblical discernment to discern when something is off because you don't know the Word of God well enough. Yep then it's a perpetuating cycle, and that's that's the tragedy of it all. It's a perpetuating cycle. People go, well, the guy in front of me is talking about Jesus. He's quoting from the Bible. What's your problem? He's talking about getting right with God. Okay, well, but you got to go a little bit more deep than a millimeter, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now, it, it, the uh, the board of accountability for uh, for Mars, you know, for Driscoll and Mars Hill, um, regarding this New York Times scandal, they said that unwise decisions were made. This was an unwise decision. And when I read their statement on Friday night, the, the thing that came to my mind and, and I, the, uh, was the immediate parallel to uh, Bill Clinton's administration. Uh, do you, you remember, you know, yeah, I mean, I remember when the Lewinsky scandal broke and I mean, it's, I think it's hard for anybody who wasn't alive back then to kind of get the magnitude of just how big that scandal was at the time. And Bill Clinton, I mean, in a press conference, he comes out and the whole nation is watching him. And he said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. And the next day, everybody in the media is parsing this thing out because it was clear that he was playing word games. And and he was spinning, you know, and and then when he finally had the – when he was finally cross-examined on all of this, his answer was classic. It all depends on what is, is. I mean, what exactly is an unwise decision when it comes to making a decision to spend tithes and offerings to make your pastor a New York Times bestseller? And, you know, I mean, it, it does uh, – unwise decision, is that a – is that a good way to describe it, or is this a, just a euphemism to cover the truth? I think it's an unwise strategy when you get caught, is what I think. Um, you know, previously, and I had, I've had i interviewed Warren Cole Smith, the reporter at World Magazine, who broke the, this story mm-hmm. a couple of times, and, and he said yesterday, well, when he initially got this statement from Justin Dean, the spokesman at Martell, it was kind of a different tenor to that. It was, well, we were trying to reach more people for Jesus, and, you know, nothing was really wrong with it. And by the time the board statement came out, the wording had changed. It's an unwise strategy. What's well, a lot more than an unwise strategy. It's an unethical strategy. It's an immoral strategy. And, you know, again, it's back to the issue of true repentance, true owning up. If they really wanted to say, boy, we really blew it, they could have used much more straightforward language to convey that. Um, it, it really, it was Clinton-esque. Chris, you've nailed it. I think it was absolutely Clinton-esque. Um, and at the very end of the statement, as you note, uh, they talk about unreservedly backing Mark Driscoll and some of the other executive elders yeah. um, for their humility. You know, I'm like, wow, that's you're living in some kind of a an alternate universe because if there's humility and and uh, all kinds of wonderful um, godliness going on. I, I haven't seen it. Um, also, the issue of 
you know, bearing up under false accusations, they don't define their terms. That's the other problem with this statement. False accusations. What false accusations? We don't know. Mm -hmm. They don't say. Then they talk about, we embarked on this strategy because outside counsel advised us to do it. Well, who is the outside counsel? Thomas Nelson came back and said it wasn't us. We're not the ones who advised them to do it. They're the publisher of the book. So they throw in all of these references, and they also talk about it didn't cost as much as has been reported. Well, then how much did it cost? How much did it cost, and where did you get the money? Did you get it from tithes? Did you get it from offerings? Did your congregation know anything about this? Was it in the budget? Was the budget handed out to every single person in the church? You, you actually learn a lot more by what is not said than by what actually was said, in my opinion. Yeah, and it... You know, I, like it's just full of euphemism and kind of misdirection and obfuscation. But what I don't see from Mars Hill, and I've never seen it ever in the years that I've been covering them, I've never seen Driscoll say, listen, I sinned. I blew it. Here's what I did wrong. I own my sin. I confess my sin. And I ask that you forgive me. I've never heard him say that. And yet, yesterday, you sent a link out on Twitter to a, a video where Mars, where Driscoll, in a in a sermon, talked about the fact that Christians never confess their sin and own it. And it was, it's bizarre. It's, it, you know, it, it's hypocritical. Yeah, I know. I know. It, it's <laughs> hypocritical beyond belief. And and the the sad part is, and this kind of brings up a point that you brought up a little earlier, is that the world easily sees this for what it is and un- yep. and unfortunately christianity the church and jesus have taken a, a pretty severe hit um you know you know pr hit as a result of this man's behavior but his continued refusal to not confess his sin i think ultimately sends a message to the world what do you think that, that his in unrepentance and euphemism and misdirection you know, what, what message does that send to the world regarding Christianity at this point? Oh, brother. Well, I think the message it sends to the world is that Christianity is just full of scam artists and con men and snake oil salesmen, and the people who put up with it are morons. People have actually told me that. And, you know, one of the ways that we can glorify God is by those of us who are Christians who do have a sense of what is biblical, need to speak up against it and publicly speak up against it and say, this is not the way it ought to be. But you're right. That, that is how the world regards us. When I, and I, you know, I was a journalist for a number of years. I was an editor for seven years. I was a reporter. I was a, went on to be a writer for about 20 years in total. When I was an editor sitting down and reading stories that were going to be published in the newspaper, the two biggest issues for you as an editor are plagiarism and libel. Those are the two biggest things that you look for, because those things will kill you if they get into a newspaper. You can get sued for libel for millions of dollars if you really had shown malice, and plagiarism, uh, same, same story. So when my friends who are in the journalism world still, and I've talked to a, a number of them who've come out since this story broke, and they're like, how in the world can people in the church not see that this is plagiarism? This is absolute plagiarism. What is wrong with you guys? Yeah. And I have to answer back and go, got me. I, I, I have no idea. And also people in academia. This is clearly plagiarism. If anybody in my class, I teach a college class, if anybody in my class had done something like this, a tenth or a one hundredth of what he did, it would, bear, it would be an F on the paper and he'd probably get kicked out of the university. It would end you. 
And the fact that it ends you in the world, look at Shia LaBeouf. This is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. Here's this actor who is plagiarized and then apologizes with another uh, plagiarized apology. He is a joke now. He had to show up at this recent film festival with a bag over his head and say that he's not go- he's not going to be in Hollywood anymore. I mean, he is a laughingstock in the world. But Driscoll does way more than that, and we honor him and throw around the word grace and act as if it pleases Jesus to have somebody who's obviously somebody who has lied and committed fraud and stolen from other people. And that's another issue, too. Where are the men he stole from standing up and saying this is wrong? Yeah. That's another question I have. Yeah, that, that's kind of the, the other angle of all of this is that the people he's plagiarized have not publicly come out and and – rebuked him for what he's done they've they've remained silent and their silence unfortunately is inter- is interpreted as as a tacit approval or winking at his behavior and it's 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 yeah. beyond me I, i'm worried at this point for the church the reason i'm worried for the church is because the the world the world has more ethics and better values than christians in the church and this cannot end well this is this Things do not go well for a society when the world, people who are dead in trespasses and sins, have more morals, more scruples ethically than the people in the church. This is, I, I, you know, I don't know what this is. I, I, historically, I can't find a parallel in the 2,000-year history of the church, and I've looked for one. I don't know what this is. Um, but I can tell you this, you know, people keep talking about how they're hoping for revival, you know, that God, there's going to be this great outpouring of the spirit. It's a bunch of nonsense. You want to see revival? It begins in the church with people saying we have sinned against God by tolerating evil men who are publicly sinning, who are not qualified to be pastors. We've not only tolerated them, we've defended them, and we've attacked those who have brought, who've raised the biblical issue regarding these men, and we repent. Until that happens, there's not going to be revival. It's only going to get worse, and Christianity is going to continue to become more of a moral joke as it slips into just a complete laughing stock of morassness based upon celebrity cults. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I, go, 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 Chris, go. I'm with you. Amen. I, and, and this is the thing. It was funny. I was reading an article not too long ago on the life of Athanasius. Athanasius, the great yeah. defender of biblical orthodoxy at a time when Arius was coming out and convincing everybody that Jesus was the first being that God created, which was absolutely heresy. Athanasius, and I didn't even realize this until I started reading a little bit more, he endured unbelievable personal attacks from people inside the church. One of the things that they did was they called him divisive. Doesn't that sound familiar, Chris? <laughs> it's my, it, hey, listen, and, uh, it's, it's on my job description now. You know, you know duties of pirate Christian, <laughs> be divisive. Yeah. yeah, I know. Well, and that's the thing. I, I had somebody uh, tell me that they were on a radio show and the radio host was saying, oh, I don't like that Janet Mufford. She's so divisive. And I said, well, yeah, I, do, I try to divide between truth and error, so yeah. I, I don't see anything wrong with that. But, um, but the point is that God is great, and he is sovereign, and he always has his people. Yeah. No matter how dark the times are, and I think it's important, as we, you and I, Chris, are kind of despairing, like, oh, Lord, this is so bad. We need to remember that God is not surprised by any of this. And frankly, one of the things I've been able to be excited about in the midst of it all is the fact that God is exposing it. He's yeah. exposing it. That is something to rejoice over, because it's something I've been praying for 
significantly in the last several months especially, Lord, bring hidden sin to light. Now, the issue will be how will the church deal with it? Will this result source issue end the ministry of Mark Driscoll, or will he go on supported by other people who want to see him continue on simply because he's Mark? This is a test. I really think it's a test, but I think we can't lose hope. When we look at Luther and the darkness and the corruption of the Catholic Church at the time, sometimes things have to get bad enough that people will come out and say, God help us, this is wrong, we've sinned, we, we need to repent as a church that we have tolerated this, and we have put up with it. And, you know, I just keep praying that the Lord is going to be glorified in all this, and that the truth will continue to come out, but also that the church is going to respond correctly. At least, hopefully, some of us will. That's about all we can hope for at this point, I think. Yeah, and I think pointing to Athanasius's story does at least give us a strategy to moving forward because uh, not only was he accused of being divisive, he was basically told by the uh, you know Arius's followers that uh, he needed to give up because the whole world was against him. And Athanasius, Athanasius gave his great reply back. He said, "No, the whole world isn't against Athanasius. It's Athanasius contra mundum. It's Athanasius against the yep. world." And and awesome. I yeah, I feel that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, and I'll pray that the Lord gives us the endurance and the ability to do our jobs without losing our love, you know, which is what the uh, Ephesian church uh, lost in their fight for truth when Christ had to rebuke them for that. So, Yeah, good point. And that's, that's it. And I think we continually need to be on our knees, and I do mean literally on our knees, um, that the Lord would clean up his church um, you know, we talk, for example, about the famine in the land, and, and we go back to that Old Testament passage where the hearing of the word of the Lord was hard to find. Yeah. And I think it would be difficult for us to say that we're not in a similar time right now. Yeah. It, it, only the Lord can turn it around. Only he can do it. And you're right. We can't lose our love. We can't lose our hope. We can't lose our faith. We just have to obey the Lord and have the integrity and have the morality and have the honesty that Jesus requires us to have as his disciples. What What is your hope in all of this? You know, the last question is, you know, what would you ideally like to see happen moving forward with the uh, with the scandals regarding Driscoll? What would you really, if you know, if, if God answered your prayer, what prayer would you really like to see answered and play out in front of the whole church at this point regarding all of this? I think Mark Driscoll should step down. I think he should leave the ministry. And I think that it would be a wonderful thing for the people at Mars Hill to reexamine what they've put up with, what they've endured. There have been a lot of staff issues and leadership issues, and we have, what, six or seven elders and staff who have come forward now, Dave Kraft, Jeff Betker, some other people, mm-hmm. who have talked about a lot of the crud that's been going on there for a long, long time. I pray for those people. I, I pray that the people in that church would return to the Word of God, and would learn the lesson that if you are a Christian, your only celebrity, and I hate to even use that word, your only uh, admired person ultimately should be the Lord Jesus himself. Right. And you should put yourself under the Word of God first and foremost and be Bereans. This is something that is so significant. Everybody is under the Word of God. The, the, the disciples didn't have a problem when the Bereans were examining what they were preaching daily to see whether or not it was so. Mm-hmm. They were commended for it. Yep. That's what we need. So my prayer would be he would step down from the ministry and that that church could 
heal and that church could come back into compliance with the Word of God. And um, that's, that's where I am right now because I think it's really necessary, and I think it would speak volumes to where we really come down as a church on the issue of ethics. I really do. What will happen from here will tell you where American Christianity, or at least the American evangelical movement, is going to go. That's just my, my opinion. Yeah, and, and that's what I'm hoping and praying for as well. And if that doesn't happen, oh, man, <laughs> the next, yeah, the next yeah. shoe that drops is going to be worse than this. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, Janet, thank you so much for taking some time today to come on Fighting for the Faith. I really appreciate the work that you're doing, and uh, keep up the fight. Well, likewise, Chris, and I pray for you, and I'm very thankful for how the Lord is using you to stand for truth. We need each other. We're a family. And I'm just thankful. I just want to say thank you to all the listeners of your show as well. You guys are great. And, uh, you know, continue to pray for Chris because he's doing some great work here and, and really trying to honor the Lord and do the right thing in the midst of a very difficult time in which we're living. So thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. You're very gracious. And that was my interview recorded earlier today with Janet Mefford. What did you think? love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, uh, we will play part one of my interview earlier today with Pastor Matt Richard regarding divisiveness and sound doctrine. Is it divisive to stand up for sound doctrine? Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> for tuning in to another episode of Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, from the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation of the Bible. Here's what it says. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of bloggers, who warned you to flee from your mother's basement? Thank you for listening to Audacious Bible Time. I'm your host, Stanley Andy. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's 
featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, those who are standing up for the biblical standards of the office of pastor, they're not the ones being divisive in the church. It's those who are not standing up for them that are. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to contribute $8.95 automatically every month. That's it to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to post office box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. We, we honestly, truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, moving along. I also have another interview today. Again, augmented format here for Fighting for the Faith. I did another interview today, an interview with Pastor Matt Richard regarding an article that he wrote on his blog entitled, Just Relax, A Little Liquid Drano Won't Hurt Anyone. (laughs) And in this article, and we'll post a link at it at fightingforthefaith.com. If it, if in fact, you go there, fightingforthefaith.com, you'll see it with today's uh, post for the podcast. Um, and in this article, he talks about uh, the kind of the mentality that says that the person who points out false doctrine is somehow the one who's being divisive rather than the one teaching false doctrine, kind of bad ideas regarding ecumenicalism and things like that. So without any further ado, here is my interview with Pastor Matt Richard. All right, on the line, I have uh, Pastor Matt Richard of Zion Lutheran Church in Gwinner, North Dakota, and I've invited him on Fighting for the Faith to discuss his article entitled, Just Relax, A Little Liquid Drano Won't Hurt Anyone. Pastor Richard, thanks for coming on uh, Fighting for the Faith. Oh, it's great to be here, Chris. All right, so I, I got to ask you right out of the shoot, are you some kind of troublemaker? I mean, what, what, what's the deal here? I mean, you're being divisive. I mean, this... <laughs> This article that you've written about, just relax, a little liquid drano won't hurt you. I mean, it makes it sound like you're saying that sound doctrine and and false doctrine are actually things that matter. I mean, isn't it just enough that somebody says Jesus is Lord or they say that Jesus died for your sins? Why are you making a stink about all this other stuff? I mean, it's it's not that important. I mean, can't we all just get along? What What are you saying here? Oh, well, you know, it, it, this this article developed really out of, 
Oh boy. From my own experiences, um, having that mentality myself. And, uh, so maybe, I guess maybe the article would serve as a, as a form of repentance for myself, uh, confess, confessing my, my errors and my, my wrongdoings on this, this topic. And I think the reality is in America right now, uh, especially in America, we, we are so focused on this idea of deeds and not creeds, and uh, we diminish this idea that truth or knowledge um, has any sway. But the reality is uh, knowledge and truth and our sources of uh, knowledge that we have are tremendously influential in each and every one of us. Uh, they shape and form the way that we see reality. They uh, shape and form um, our ethics and so forth. So to to write off doctrine, we all have doctrines we follow. To write them off and saying that they're they're not important is uh, just frankly it's just naive, and I, and I don't say that to be you know mean spirited by any means. But the doctrines they do shape the way that we perceive reality. Uh, they 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 function in ways of of, of implica- implicating our ethics mm-hmm. and what happens. So we we really have to get back down to that bedrock foundation. What do we believe and why? All right, so let's kind of set this up a little bit here. So we're, we're talking about the importance of sound doctrine and how having sound doctrine is not a vice, it's a virtue. That's kind of if you were to boil your article down, you know, that's where we're getting to. Now, uh, you spent some time, uh, you know, being kind of a generic evangelical, kind of pietistic in your orientation. I've been there, I've done that. And uh, and in your article, you talk about specifically the purpose-driven life and the errors that are in it, you know, as kind of the, the issue. When you first came across the purpose-driven life what did you think of that book oh i i loved it and uh i wrote a uh, and this is my first year of seminary and uh my first year of seminary i wrote a uh, uh i'm trying to recall what the actual title of the paper was but it was basically a paper capturing our missiology as pastors how we were going to do missions in the church and that was kind of the fundamental book uh purpose-driven life and purpose-driven church and so in seminary, my first year, I was using that in my missions class. Mm-hmm. And then simultaneously, I was taking a systematics class, and the professor proceeded to criticize that. And I was deeply offended. I was extremely offended. And uh, as I stated in the article, I, I, I found myself uh, looking at him, uh, this professor, and just thinking, my goodness, you, you, you're attacking uh, our own Christian camp. Uh, we need to stick together was my, my philosophy. And so I saw him very much as being mean-spirited, uh, being negative, uh, being divisive, and uh, it really couldn't be further from the truth. Okay. Now, all right. So so that was your reaction. So you, you were a gung-ho, purpose-driven life guy. You have a sem prof who basically pulls out the Gatling gun and shoots holes in the thing. And, right. you're, and you thought that what he did was unloving, that it was yeah, unkind. Yeah. yeah, I thought he was rude. He was insincere, unecumenical, um, you know, and so forth. And, and for me, the perception was, and I think this is something that we see across the board, uh, you know, within, I would say, pop American evangelicalism. There's this mentality that I had that, uh, you know, why criticize somebody that's trying to promote the Christian message? What, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, at least he's getting the message out there. I mean, there could be all these other uh, errors out there uh, and so forth. I mean, for goodness, let's look at the atheists and what they're doing. At least this guy is trying to put forth, you know, a Christian message that people are actually reading. You know, right. that was my philosophy. Okay. And so, so I guess from there, what, what I realized and I came to realize a little later on, uh, it, it actually it was after seminary that this started to cement for myself. I came to realize that what is worse than um, blatant false truth is subtle untruth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Yeah. So, 
So yeah, that that is kind of your argument. Which is worse, Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism? And you, right, you, right. You 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 come down against semi-Pelagianism being more dangerous. Why would semi-Pelagianism be more dangerous than Pelagianism? Yeah, and then this is really um, this is just my paraphrase of uh, Luther's Bondage of the Will, and and he's he's talking about uh, in in Luther's Bondage of the Will, he's actually arguing against this guy, the humanist named Erasmus, mm-hmm. and. Um, and so with Pelagianism, Pelagianism is just outright, uh, you know, denial of original sin. I believe I, I was listening to your program here last night as I was traveling back to my hometown, and you were talking about Joel Osteen and, and his denial of original sin. I mean, that, that is Pelagianism to a T. And I've even heard people call Osteen a hyper-Pelagian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we know we got, uh, now we, so we got Pelagianism, semi-Pelagian, and then on the other hand, hyper-Pelagianism. Right, 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 right. You, or we want to say an uber-Pelagianist, <laughs> Uber, you know. Yeah, the German, yeah, the German and, and so, uh, so, <laughs> so anyway... But a semi-Pelagian is going to be uh, just a, a lesser degree of Pelagianism. And so I basically equate it to if a Pelagianist uh, injects a whole bottle of Drano into the mix, a semi-Pelagian is going to put a teaspoon. Right. And, and the reality is, is what is worse? Well, you know, they're both harmful. And, but the reality is what is worse? What's worse is that is which is subtle, you know, mm-hmm. that is mixed in there and that you actually drink up or you eat up the cookies without even realizing that you're ingesting uh, just a teaspoon of Drano. Yeah, and then you find yourself in the bathroom hurling, and you don't know what happened to you. Right, right. And you can't pinpoint it. You, you don't know. So it's it's taking it in. And so that that's kind of back to my argument with this professor. Uh, I was perceiving that he was being nitpicky. It's like, oh, my goodness, here he goes again. He's nitpicking and tearing this down, and he's trying to you know, uh, pick out every little uh, pixel, you know, mm-hmm. of... Yeah, of, he, did, he did that wrong. It's, every little pixel! Yeah. <laughs> I actually... And I, I, didn't, I didn't footnote uh, Futrick in that, but I, 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 did, I did intentionally put that. Uh, what does he say? You know, I nitpick every pixel of God's glorious picture? Yeah, something like yeah. that, yeah. Yeah, but you gotta, yeah, you gotta so, do it in, the, in that voice, though, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, so it was, it was basically... I looked at my prof, and, and I was very much like, uh, man, you know, he's picking every little detail. He's I mean, let's get on with things. I mean, this guy's at least he's trying to love and promote fellowship and and the, the gospel evangelism. But the reality, what my prof was doing is he was coming against this teaspoon of Drano because he cared for me. Yeah, and he had the uh, love and integrity uh, within himself to to reach out and uh, confront me on it, even though it would earn him a stigma of being unloving and rude. Right. Yeah. I, you know, if I, I really should keep these emails, but I mean, over the years, I have received some of the most vitriolic um, criticism, hate emails. Okay. And, and I hate to call them that, but, um, you know, from time to time, I'll get a really good uh, critical email where somebody's actually taking the time to engage a, a concept, to, you know, challenge a doctrine, open up a Bible, and, you know, and basically say, hey, well, have you considered this or something? But that's the, the few and far between email. A lot of the times, the emails I will get is, you are the most unloving, hateful, spiteful individual I have ever had the displeasure of listening to. I can't believe you call yourself a Christian. And then, then it go, and then it usually gets into things along the lines of, this is exactly why the Bible, you know, the Bible warns us about head knowledge versus heart knowledge. You clearly have way too much head knowledge, and it's causing you your heart to be poisoned. And uh, this is kind of the classic argument. I mean, you you remember arguing head knowledge versus heart knowledge kind of stuff. You want to comment on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it it for some reason the the um, 
premise comes down to that, you know, head knowledge is dead orthodoxy. It doesn't matter. And what really matters is this vibrant life, um, you know, the deeds and not creeds. And, you know, unfortunately, I, I don't know the exact reason or the historical motives for it, but, uh, you know, it's definitely going to be that shift of 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 the confession versus uh, the deeds and the deeds being more valuable. But uh, the reality is it's the confession and it's the scriptures and it's the doctrine that drives. And, yeah. and whether we, we admit it or not, that is the reality. It is what is in the driver's seat. And, uh, you know, I guess for me too, the other thing to realize is that uh, the sound doctrine is of great importance. You look through the pastoral epistles. And in fact, uh, if you just do a simple reading of, of you know, First and Second Timothy and Titus, mm-hmm. you'll see over and over and over, you know, Paul's saying, watch your sound doctrine, watch your sound doctrine over and over and over. So I would argue that part of this, quote unquote, sanctification, this living out this Christian life uh, and being obedient children, if we want to use that terminology, is actually watching sound doctrine. And we are actually walking in good, righteous, holy sanctification when mm-hmm. we actually preserve sound doctrine. Right. Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, just to kind of point this out, I mean, if we were just to do a simple survey of the New Testament, okay, Jesus himself makes a point about warning about wolves in sheep's clothing, right, who come in and tear apart the flock. So, you know, this warning against false doctrine in the New Testament begins with Jesus. But Jesus isn't the first one to echo this. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament and Yahweh and watch your, you know, you watch your, your doctrine carefully. And, and then you have the entire episodes where Israel falls into false doctrine, begins worshiping false deities, and, uh, the, and and over and again, you see, it wasn't that they wholesale just forgot worshiping Yahweh. Uh, instead, what they ended up doing was engaging in syncretism. And so, you know, in Solomon's temple itself, I mean, there was an Asherah pole. They had Baal statues. They had the starry host represented. I mean, and, you know, they, so you had all these idols being, you know, being alongside of Yahweh in his own temple. I mean, these are examples of what was going on. And Scripture over and again, God sends his prophets to warn the people to repent and assures them of his mercy and forgiveness, and, but they wouldn't have nothing to do with it. And, and at, after some stretch of time, when God, you know, God continues to hold out his hand and say, repent, I love you, I forgive you, and he likens Israel to you know, a, a prostitute, you know, his wife who's gone you know, hooking down on the corner. Um, at some point he says, fine, have it your way, and then he judges. All right. So, and then walking through the the New Testament, then you have Jesus warning against uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. Then you have just a quick you know summary here in my mind. Galatians is written against a heresy. Is written against a false gospel. Um, the uh, the book, uh, the first, second, uh, first and second Timothy, Titus all have very major themes against false doctrine. The book of Jude is written against false doctrine. Second Peter against false doctrine. Second and third John against false doctrine. Uh, and you know, and the list goes on. Even Revelation itself, you in, in the uh, in the letters that are written to the different churches, you have the overall theme of of you know the churches that are finding out the false apostles are commended for Christ by Christ from doing that. The ones who are teaching false doctrines, the Nicolaitans and uh, the uh, the church where the preaching and teaching of the secret things of Jezebel are condemned. And Jesus, in, 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 those, in, in those letters, you know, that are red letters in the uh, book of Revelation, he's calling, saying he's being patient and giving them time to repent. And so sound doctrine versus false doctrine is not a minor theme in Scripture. It's, it's part and parcel of the very first commandment, you will have no other gods before me. Am I, am I wrong in connecting it back to the first commandment? 
Yeah, you're absolutely right on. Um, You're totally right on. If you think about all the uh, pastoral epistles and and all the Paul's letters, they're all written in response to false doctrine. And, uh, you know, you look at Corinthians, like like you mentioned before, written against abuses in the church. You look at Galatians, it was against uh, false doctrine and so forth. You see it everywhere. And so we, we sometimes get this perception that the New Testament was you know, this glorious time where the church had it all together. And so I always, I always get a kick out of people saying we need to return to the New Testament times. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a New Testament church. And I'm like, you serious? We want to, want to be as messed up as they were? I mean, they, <laughs> you look at all the epistles are written towards heresies uh, that had developed in the early church. And so, yeah, we see this over and over and over throughout scripture. And uh, we see, you know, as far as the, the, the prophets, uh, Jeremiah and, and uh, you go through Amos and all of these Old Testament prophets, they're all speaking towards this syncretism. And I mean, and that, and that's one thing that I mentioned in the article too is that this is characteristic of the evil one. I mean, it would be way too easy for Satan himself to just say, you know, uh, I want to attack Christians, so I'm going to eliminate Scripture. No, that, that's that's too obvious. Yeah. Uh, the reality is that he takes the Scripture and he twists it and he omits. Um, and I think we naively, at many times, we believe that if something is evil, it's going to come with you know horns and and a red letters you know on on it package saying spicy. But that's not the reality. Uh, spicy. spicy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. False but, doctrine is spicy. Yeah. <laughs> That's for my sermon on Sunday. So <laughs> okay, I get it. <laughs> so, but yeah, the the reality is it, it's it's when it comes when the evil one comes uh, to deceive, it is taking and it's moving it off center ever so slightly. It's that one degree, or it's that that two percent shift, or that teaspoon of of uh, Drano that is actually. Uh, what's so deceptive and destroying, and that's why Jesus comes back to say that the yeast, you know, will leaven a whole lump. Yeah, and so uh, it is of utmost utmost importance. Yeah, it, he says a little leaven, just just a little, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not a lot. It just takes a little, and then you got yep. you got yourself one yeasty thing going on there, and. Yep. Yeah. So uh, you, <laughs> bad metaphor, but you could say you know it, when you got false doctrine, the church is suffering from a yeast infection. Right. You know? right. So yeah, listen, people are going to send me emails on that. I'm just working with the biblical language here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, but so what made the what made the change for you? I mean, so here you got yourself offended because your seminary prof is taking you to task and taking the, the purpose driven life to task. How did you end up coming full, you know, like, you know, doing a 180? And it's not full circle. Otherwise, you'd be just do a spin and go keep going the same way. But you did, <laughs> yeah. a, you did a 180. And, uh, and now you're, you're, you're one of these guys who's uh, taken false doctrine to task and uh, engaging in the same hateful, divisive behavior that you loathed uh, when you were a first-year seminarian. Yeah. Well, a couple things. One is my understanding of fellowship in the church. And uh, this may seem kind of odd to jump into this uh, stream of thought here, but let me explain. The uh, church, I had once understood that the church was a collection of people with a common um, common experience and that uh, Christian koinonia, uh, which is, is a Greek word of Christian fellowship, is just basically the warmth of the church. And so you would judge the strength of the church and the health of a church of how well everyone related, how much we networked together, how much we were assimilating with each other. And so if we had a real warm Christian 
fellowship, um, then therefore that's good. And so that, that in a lot of ways, that was my highest uh, ideal of what the church was, was a focus on happy church or a church that got along. Mm-hmm. And so if that is your, 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 your supreme view of what the church is, then you're going to defend that from anything that would be divisive from splitting that up. And what happened, too, is, is, is part of my, my shift was that that is not what the Bible speaks of Christian koinonia, being Christian fellowship. Um, rather, we, we don't participate with, you know, each other as far as um, having this commonality. Rather, it's a participation in something or someone being Christ. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is that, you know, we have people who like Fords and people who like Chevys and farmers and ranchers and bankers, um, you know, uh, different ethnicities and all that. And we're all gathered together into one common thing, which is Christ for us. And so if we're not really joined together between one and one another, but we're rather joined together in something objective, something outside of us, which is Christ crucified and his scriptures and his word and sacrament for us, then our unity shifts from our friendships to that objective reality of who Christ is in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. So therefore, um, you know, before I would want to preserve that uh, Christian community, but now if you're Christian community is anchored in Christ, then therefore to have true Christian unity, you have to keep that doctrine solid. I, I hope I'm making sense when I say that. You no, know, I, I understand the distinction uh, completely. You're, you're, you're basically putting the emphasis off of something that's subjective that you kind of experience and live in just because we're all happy with each other, um, as opposed to something objective that you can look to and say, wait a second, if we're all in Christ and Christ has said this is important, then if we're in Christ, we need to have these mutually shared doctrines and values and ideas, you know, together. And uh, it's not unloving to call Christians, who are people who publicly confess Christ, to to jettison their unique doctrines and come and be part of of the objective Catholic thing, small c. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing is that you know some of these things that seem subtle to us, um, I, and this is one thing that drives me nuts. And uh, well, I'll have conversations with individuals, and I've had these over years, and I actually used this on argument myself at one point in time, where we get visiting, you kind of have that tension, and all of a sudden you say, well, I think we're saying the same thing, but we're just using different words. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, the reality is, is when you pull things back and you look at it, some things that seem ever so subtle are actually huge. Uh, one thing I know, I'm sure you've you've picked up many times before on uh, fighting for the faith. Uh, who does the work of the verbs? I mean, that's huge. Yep, that's right. Um, you know, whether whether I am the subject of the sentence or whether I'm the direct object. You know, uh, in other words, am I the one doing all the verbs or is God doing the verbs to me? Um, you, you can just say, oh, that's just a linguistic thing. Well, it actually isn't. It, it repositions us in a completely different dimension. Uh, being receivers rather than the doers towards yeah. God. I mean, that's huge. And so some of these things that we would see as, you know, little teaspoons of Drano, the, the, the impact of it are, uh, the impact of it is just extreme uh, when you actually march down the field a little bit and see the ramifications maybe, you know, uh, four or five positions down the road. Right. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with you. All right, I'm going to pause my interview with Pastor Matt Richard and uh, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back, the balance of my interview 
with Pastor Matt Richard regarding his article entitled, Just Relax, A Little Liquid Drano Won't Hurt Anyone. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. We're well into hour number two here at Fighting for the Faith. Not doing a sermon review today. All right, I heard that. I heard somebody going, thank you, thank you, thank you. We're just going to get right to it. Here is the balance of my interview earlier today with uh, Pastor Matt Richard regarding his article entitled, Just Relax. A little liquid Drano won't hurt anyone. Here we go. Verbs, by the way, you're right. They are the important thing. And what I find fascinating is, is that, you know, when I when people try to engage me on these things and... You know, I'll take a passage and point out the grammar and the verb and the direct object. They want to just gloss it over. You know, and, and I find so many times it's like, no, 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 we're going to stay on this sentence until you get what this sentence is saying. And you can't move beyond it because uh, they play so fast and loose with Scripture that uh, the idea of actually carefully parsing a sentence out and paying attention to what's going on. Uh, the tense of the verb, who's the subject of the verb, that th- 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 that's everything, and they consider it to be nothing. 
and uh, which is absolutely fascinating to me. Now, let me ask you this. Okay, you know, one of the things I find fascinating is um, uh, one of the uh, rhetorical um, arguments used by Dr. Michael Brown. Are you familiar with the Strange Fire Conference and uh, John MacArthur and, uh, you know, those guys and, and their – a uh, big criticism of uh, the the big charismatic movement as a whole and many of the abuses that go on there. Are you familiar with that? Just just a little bit. Uh, I guess I haven't dived into it okay. uh, tremendously. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, uh, good. Cause I'll give you a cold read then. You know. So uh, so here's the idea: is that um, Dr. Michael Brown, who is a guy who was part of the Brownsville revival, um, and you know he's an outspoken advocate for the charismatic movement and a critic of uh, John MacArthur and their criticisms of the of the charismatic movement. Um, he recently appeared on Benny Hinn's program, and I mean, it, it, there's some really crazy things that have kind of gone along with this, and it, it created a little bit of a stir. And his the, his defense, the way he argued it, was fascinating. Is is that he looks at Benny Hinn and he sees Benny Hinn's word of faith, sow a seed in my ministry and and God is going to bless it a hundredfold teaching. He sees that as a, a fundraising issue and he, and he gives Benny Hinn a pass. Well, because Benny Hinn, he says he's heard him cl- uh, preach a clear gospel message. Is is that's all that's necessary is for somebody to preach a clear gospel message, and then we can take the word of faith, sow a seed doctrine, and and just make that a fundraising issue. Well, this to respond to that, I mean, there's big dangers with that. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Robert Kolb. He's he's uh, my daughter, father, and uh, he has a book written called The Christian Faith, and he talks about the whole of. Christian doctrine representing a body, a human body. And he said that Christ is the head, the heart is justification. And then you have all these other, you know, body parts. You know, you have the arm, uh, could be the doctrine of the church. You have the other arm being the doctrine of baptism. Maybe the leg being the doctrine of uh, communion. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the other leg doctrine of ecclesio- uh, ecclesiology or slash uh, uh, the end times. And his his premise is this. He said, you know, in order to live, you need to have the head, which is Christ, and you need the heart, which you know, bumping, you know, pumping blood, which is justification. And then I like the way he argues on this. He says, "So why do we care about having pure doctrine all throughout the whole body?" Well, obviously, if you have a cut in in your arm, which is the doctrine of the church, that could get infected and it can infect the heart, and you could die. Mm-hmm. Or if you have a bum leg and you, uh, you know, your, your view of end times is just so warped. You could actually trip and fall and hit your head, which is Christ. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this this whole idea of, you know, holding on to Christ and justification and then, you know, not sweating the small stuff, um, frankly, that comes back to that problem, too, of uh, that stuff can actually bleed back in and infect that heart right. or it can cause us to trip and hit our head. And so um, that that is a key, key issue. So I would contend that... Um, Maintaining and having purity of doctrine throughout the whole body is of utmost importance. Yeah, I, I would agree with you, and I and I would even throw in you know Jesus' parable of the uh, of the soils as an example because he talks about the seed falling in among the weeds, and it it's not like the seed doesn't take root; it takes root and it grows up, but the weeds choke it out so that it's unfruitful. And uh, and what the weeds represent, according to Christ, are the cares and, and, and concerns of this world. It could be political, it could be money, it could be you know finding your purpose or whatever you know like that. And and so what I one of the things I find fascinating about so many of today's false teaching 
is its uber emphasis on the here and the now. You know, have you you, you got a health issue? Oh, listen, I, I we we got a solution for you. You know, send me a seed offering and God's going to heal you. Oh, you know, you, you're you're struggling to pay your debts. Oh, no problem. Send me a seed offering and God's going to um, send you a hundredfold blessing so that uh, you can own a Mercedes Benz. You know, you feel like you're suffering from insignificance. Oh no, don't worry. You're going to get a direct revelation from God and He's going to show you your your unique purpose. You know, and and it seems like the the uh, the emphasis in all of those doctrines is to strip mine the Bible and you know kind of shift what the text says in order to make it so that God somehow promises in the here and the now that uh, you're not going to suffer, that uh, that you know Jesus is the solution for your temporal sufferings. Whereas uh, my read of Scripture is is that there is no guarantee that we Christians will not face temporal suffering. In fact, there's many guarantees that we will not only suffering and persecution, but we're we're admonished by Christ to you know deny ourselves and take up our cross. And all of those cares of the world then are choking out uh, the the goods you know, the seed that's taken root and making it so that these people don't reproduce as Christians. They become unfruitful. With you know, am I understanding that right? Yeah, absolutely. And and here's here's the key too, um, as you were sharing some of these different examples. I've always I was told people to uh, you know, listen to the teaching and is Jesus the end or is he a means to another end? Um a lot of these is you know, a lot of these different teachings, they'll 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 confess you need Jesus, right? Which we would say, yeah, we do. Um but then the reason for needing Jesus is that he's a means to another end. So you need Jesus to be more uh, have more joy, or you need Jesus for prosperity rather than Jesus being our joy and Christ being our prosperity in Christ. Right. And if if you think of, you know, the the uh, uh, epistle of, of Hebrews, uh, I think it's right around Hebrews chapter six. You know, he talks about us pressing onward. You know, um, leaving uh, the the doctrines of uh, uh, the foundational doctrines of Christ, and where are we to move? We're to move more into the more, um, I guess you would say, the precious doctrines of Christ. And so the, 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 the flow of Hebrews takes us from Christ and moves us into Christ even more. Mm-hmm. And so it's never moving away from Christ. Um, and that's where my concern comes with many of these teachings. You know, where are they pointing us? Where are they leading us? And so, again, you can, you can emphasize that you need Jesus. Um, but if he's a means to another end, then I would say, well, we're just putting Jesus into our debt and we're using him with our old Adam. Yeah. Now this is another, you know, kind of along those same lines then is that, uh, you know, in conversations that I have with uh, other people and, you know, leaders within the evangelical movement and things like that, um, they are always taken aback when, um, I will make the claim, you know, and I've done this face to face with some of the guys I actually critique on the radio, their sermons, you know, I've looked them straight in the face and said, you know, listen, you, you preach yourself, you don't preach Christ. And they are literally shocked and floored that I would say something like that. And, and they, they, they would say, Our, my sermons are the most Christ-centered. And, and, you know, my immediate response when somebody says something like that is, um, well, if that's the case, why don't you preach him? And their response back is because they have a different paradigm, kind of a, a different way of matrixing the Bible is, is that they believe that it's Christ-centered if they're admonishing people to be more Christ-like. You don't need to preach about Jesus to do that. You just need to get obedient. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think I think that comes back to the question of asking, well, 
who is Christ. I'll give you an example. Um, I had a conflict here in a previous church uh, a while back, and I remember talking to an individual, another pastor about it, and uh, he said, well, what's what's the issue? And I said, well, we kind of have two uh, groups, I guess you would say, struggling. And when it comes down to it, I, I explained to this this way. If I say it's all about Jesus, one group is going to say, yes, it's all about Jesus and how well we're serving him, how much we're emulating him, um, all about how well we are following in his footsteps and so forth. And so they would say it's all about Jesus and they would fight, you know, to the very end. It's all about Jesus and how well we are being obedient to him. And then I, and I told my other friend, I said, well, we have another group in this, in, in this church, in this fellowship, where I say it's all about Jesus. And they will say, yeah, it's all about Jesus and his shed blood for me, a poor and miserable sinner. I cannot do it. I need Jesus. I need his forgiveness. I need his cleansing. Daily, I am a sinner. And so, therefore, when you come back to that illustration there, both would say that they're Christ-centered. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the question is, which way is the arrow going? Um, are we centered on Christ? Are we climbing the ladder to get closer to him? Or are we Christ-centered that he is descending down into our rubble of sin uh, cleansing and forgiving us. Right. And what's, I think, interesting, going back to something you said earlier, yeah, you know, uh, oftentimes the people will say, oh, we're just saying the same thing with different words. In this particular case, we're saying the same words and mean the exact, completely different things. Yeah, absolutely. And and that is, you know, there, there, there are presuppositions at work. And, and um, I, I'm firmly convinced that the only way those presuppositions can uh, be fleshed out is if you ask this question, you know, I'm, I'm focused on Jesus. Well, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, explain it in different words. And, and you got to get underneath that service. And this goes back all the way to Luther, uh, the Heidelberg Disputation, uh, 15, 18, 15, 19, if my memory serves me right. And he lays forth in the Heidelberg Disputation two different and fundamental ways of looking at life and reality, what we call a theology of the cross, and the other being a theology of glory. And uh, uh, the theology of glory is not uh, – I've shared that with some of my Calvinist friends, and they say, well, no, glory is good. And I'm like, well, it's, Luther uses it differently. Yeah. And uh, you have those two foundational presuppositions at the very bedrock foundation, and the words that we use are going to be coming out of those frameworks. And so we got to peel the layers back and say, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by faith? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, many people hear the word faith and they see it as an act of their will. Uh, Rather being faith, as, you know, Paul says in Ephesians and also says in Romans 10, that faith is a gift, something that's created. It's not the uh, act of will to uh, climb upward and beyond. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to actually pull those layers back and say, what do you mean by those words? Yeah. And and what I find fascinating, I mean, I've been on the other side of it where, you know, I thought Christ-centered means all the things I do to be more like Christ. You know, I, right. I've tried that. And and I found that uh, you know, that's literally just all law and there's no gospel. And, you know, when you stumble and fall, which you're going to do because, you know, you have your sinful flesh to contend with until it, you know, until it's put into a box, um, you know, the, the assurance is we'll just try harder, you know, just get up and do it again and do it again and do it again. And in that type of system of, you know, Christ-centered means to be more Christ-like, um, number one, the goal seems uh, humanly unattainable, and number two... Um, even if it were attainable, when would you know enough is enough? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and when it all comes down to it, it's like like we're coming back, you know, to actually 
confronts somebody who says that, you know, it's all about Christ and I'm Christ-centered. And if you ask that question, well, what do you mean by that? Uh, that would come across as divisive or confrontational. But the reality is, is like we said, there's there's two huge fundamental differences in the way that we approach Scripture, uh, our anthropology, our view of man, mm-hmm. um, our view of God. I mean, it's it's all backwards. Uh, yeah. And so it, it is so important to uh, peel those layers back. And the, the work that you're doing, you know, at uh, Fighting for the Faith and so forth, is just so important to um, peel those layers back. Yeah. Well, we uh, it's got to be done. So yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it, but it, it's a tough it's a tough road to hoe, and the reason why is because I think our sinful nature, by nature, because we have the law written on our heart. You know, we we want to go with the flow with that uh, with the law written on our heart, and we we really kind of believe in this cosmic quid pro quo. And the gospel comes along, the real biblical gospel, and you say you can't be that good. <laughs> you know, in fact, I tell the story you know from time to time that. Uh, when I was first hearing the gospel from Dr. Rod Rosenblatt at uh, Christ College Irvine, which is now Concordia uh, Irvine, um, you know, I was a Nazarene. And he, my first impression of Rosenblatt was, number one, he couldn't possibly be saved because he wasn't even trying. Okay, that was my f- first impression. It's like, you know, I, I, in fact, I remember telling somebody, he, he can't be saved. He, the man hasn't got a pious bone in his body. He's not even trying. You know, there was no, in, in, see, the, in the Nazarene theology, which was kind of Wesleyanism mixed with Finneite uh, revival, camp revival type uh, measures, um, I mean, everybody spent a lot of time putting paint on the facade, okay, and hiding behind the facade and praying to God that nobody would detect the sin behind the facade. That's how this works, okay? So I get to Christ College Irvine, and there's Rosenblatt. I mean, not even trying. There's no paint on the facade. There's no facade. All you see is the sinner. And you're thinking, this is ridiculous, okay? And it was compelling and repulsive all at the same time, and it was very difficult to work through. And when, you know, and then you know, after a few months of sitting through his classes and hearing him preach the gospel, and always he, when he would talk about sin, he would talk about himself and talk about his need of the Savior. He would say things like, all of my blue chips are on Jesus, and if it doesn't come up Jesus, I'm damned. You know, he'd say things like that, and I'm thinking, come on, you really, you know, and, um, and it, it starts to sink in after a while, and I go up to Rosenblatt after class one time, and I said, listen, I said, if what you're saying is true, that my salvation is completely based upon what Jesus has done and, and nothing that, I'm, that I am doing or can do, then you're saying that I can do whatever I want. And Rosenblatt says to me, right, but now that you've been set free and you now love God, what do you want to do? Yeah, that's awesome. That is, that is simply awesome. You know, and, and, and I've, and I've been pushed back on that too, you know, it, coming out of my own uh, evangelicalism and my own bondage to my own works righteousness. And I, you know, I always say I'm still a Pharisee at heart. I mean, that's, that's my inclination and that needs to be put to death daily. Yeah. Um, but I've had pushback too from individuals saying, you know, you're, you're promoting licentiousness and, and it's just, it's absurd. You know, it, it, what Paul says in Romans, you know, uh, five and six, you know, you're baptized into Christ, you're dead in Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, I had a youth that once said to me, uh, great, great deal. She goes, man, uh, she goes, pastor, uh, just because I have dental insurance doesn't mean I go chewing a pack of razor blades. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, 
It is. It's absolutely insane. And so that rationale is not from the gospel. It's not from the new man. That rationale that I'm saved in Jesus, now I can do whatever I want, that is a lie from the pit of hell. And that is yeah. actually a lie of the old Adam. Yeah, that's and exactly so, right. And and see, that's exactly what Paul came against. He preached the gospel in all of its saving glory. And he was accused of saying, you know, of saying, well, let's sin so the grace may abound. And it's a complete category error. Number one, sin is slavery. It's not freedom. Christ hasn't set you free to be a slave. That doesn't make any sense. It's a complete ridiculous oxymoron. But I can tell you this from personal experience in churches where the law is really heavy and the gospel barely ever shows up, if ever. Okay, in those churches, the licentiousness and nasty, pernicious sins, they are just behind the facade. And they are running rampant. In fact, I know this from personal experience. In fact, you take me to a church where it's all law, 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 law. I'll hire a private detective, and you're going to find out just how nasty things are in that church. Because it's it's as sure as – as you know, the sun is rising in the east. Where you have all law preaching, that excites your sinful nature yep. and makes yep. it have an appetite for the things that you keep railing and preaching against. In fact, yep. I just think it's a matter of time before some enterprising person figures this out and goes and finds out finds out what the hidden sins are at Westboro Baptist. And I bet they are nasty. Yeah, yeah. And the key is, and in, in, in what I've I've shared many times before. I uh, just taught this here in, in a, on a Wednesday study. The key is not to conceal sin, uh, which is legalism, and the key is not to celebrate it as it, as you would find in lawless, lawlessness or licentiousness. The key is confession yeah. of sin. And uh, so I, I, I'm kind of proud of myself. I came up with three C's there. You know. <laughs> oh, you're so like Rick Warren. I, <laughs> I know. I know. Man, <laughs> you know, conceal versus celebrate versus confess. Yeah, I should make a T-shirt out of that. I'm oh sure. man, I'm, I'm yeah. telling you, somebody's working on it right now. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, uh, but the, yeah, the key is confession of sin, and that is what we have. Uh, I, I'm so so privileged to be a part of my my local church here. Uh, we have a confession of sin every Sunday, mm-hmm. and I've told my congregation, I said, "Isn't it awesome that we all come in and none of this hierarchy junk where you know we're trying to outdo each other with our works righteousness? We all come come in and we admit that we're sinners in thought, word, and deed. That we're all poor beggars, yep. and we come here to receive free, warm bread." Uh, it just it just it is awesome yeah and um and so you know it, it's it, i've heard this phrase too before and i'm not sure where who coined it but really you know christianity is for sinners that's right you know that's right and we should put a big sign up in front of our churches saying sinners only mm. um that's you know sinners to receive the warm bread the forgiveness of sins in christ right and, and so and that doesn't breed licentiousness that, no. Because he, here's the deal, is that somebody who's really had God's law preached in all of its fury is not going to sit there and say, oh, I can't wait to get some more of that. Okay? Right, what right. they're going to say is, is that, please, God, have mercy on me and free me. Because, right. and, and see, that's the thing. We're, uh, we're in the business as, as preachers of the gospel and proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ of setting sinners free from bondage to sin, death, and the devil, not setting them free to go and continue to be in bondage. That doesn't make a darn bit of sense. But it doesn't come by just preaching the law. It comes by preaching the law to kill. 
and yep. you know, stop setting it to stun. I mean, you know, the, the the law of God is not a Star Trek phaser that you can set to kill or stun or wound or maim. <laughs> okay, the, the the law of God should have one setting, and that's blast your face off. Okay, yep, yep. and and yep. and don't be merciful. Let it fly. You know, yep. take aim at that sinner and pull the trigger and kill him. Okay. Because that's what needs to happen. And then come in and say, and Christ bled and died for all of that. Repent, be forgiven, and be set free. This is the call of the gospel. And um, it's something completely different. Now, in the in that scenario, are there people that are going to continue to struggle with sin? Yes, because we all have sinful natures. But what you're going to find where law and gospel are rightly distinguished, where law is preached to kill, the gospel is preached to comfort, that doesn't breed licentiousness. That creates true Christian sanctification because then our motivation, because it's, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And it's that daily repentance because of God's kindness that we then now have the motivation, the power to begin to mortify our sinful flesh. And it's it's not an easy task. Having a sinful flesh for the rest of our lives is for the birds. I can't stand it. I'm looking forward to the day when I do not have a sinful flesh, when yep, I am yep. able to walk in righteousness and never again in my entire eternal existence have to say to Jesus, forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. I cannot wait until that day. And that only comes through a, a hard preaching of the law and the comforting of, of the gospel and not throwing me back on myself. Yeah, yeah. You know, the key comes back to, um, if you think about this from this perspective, this is from a book here. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I can't recall which book it was from, but it's not original with me. I'll just say that. Uh, the view of, of us as human beings, um, oftentimes we, we perceive that as human beings that we have three gears. We have forward, neutral, and reverse. And so then if we perceive that, hey, you know, we're just kind of in this neutral state, and then we go to church, and the goal of the church then is for the pastor to encourage me not to do reverse because it's really, really bad, and that we should really, you know, go forward because forward is really, really good. Uh-huh. And in order to do that, he just encourages you with law, don't do bad, do good. And what Luther actually does in the, his book called Bonds of the Will is he essentially comes in and he says this, uh, guys, there is no forward and there is no neutral. Uh, there's only reverse. And in fact, there's no stick to shift. And it's even <laughs> worse. You're, you're in a car and you're going to reverse and you're going over a cliff and you can't do anything. Right. And so the reality is then the law is preached to help reveal to people that you know, you think that you have these options to go forward or reverse, but the reality, the law shows you that you're damned. Yeah. You're going over the cliff. You don't have a stick to shift. And then that brings out that idea of like, well, what do I do? Well, praise be to God that Jesus descends to you. He comes to you and he rescues you. He washes you in the waters of your baptism. He comes to you and he claims you and he feeds you your body, the body, his body and blood. Yep. And he claims you and he resurrects you in him. And so... The gospel, the law and the gospel are always much more stern and much more sweet uh, than when we first <laughs> look yeah. at, you know. Yeah. So. And you know, I, I, I see the attempt to try to placate God through our good works as still somehow connected to the original um, temptation in the garden. The temptation in the garden is to be like God. And and the idea of earning my salvation by my good works or my keeping of the law is to put God into my debt and in some way exalt myself over him. I've done this, you owe me that. I still see it as an right. extension of that. 
And the good news is this, is that that because we were tempted into believing that we could be like God, God in his mercy becomes a man and he becomes our equal, but not just our equal according to the flesh. According to our society, he becomes our servant, the most lowly and the despised among us. And uh, and that is really good news. And there's something very compelling about that that basically flips everything on its head and base in calls and screams out, stop trying this business of being like God. God became a man to save you. Repent and believe what he's done for you in his humble, lowly state. Yeah, absolutely. You're right on. <laughs> right on. And, you know, the law, what it needs to do is is uh, when we're in that state, we're actually, you know, uh, saying that we're perceiving this is this is me and this is my old nature. I want to grab hold of law and I want to get to work. Uh, but what I need is actually I need more law to shut my mouth, you know, yeah. uh, bring me to a stop. Uh, I need to be slaughtered and exposed for the sinner that I am so that I might hear Jesus uh, again and again and again. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's so counterintuitive. I mean, you know, when you first run across the biblical gospel, oftentimes the reaction is there's no way that can be true. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's just no, no, no. Come on. Really? You know, and so it, it's always fascinating, you know, to me how that all works out. But what's even more fascinating is that people who don't know the categories who then hear just how free we are in Christ, and and they hear this glorious good news. Their suspicion is is that we're we're trying to teach antinomianism. That what we're right. really saying is is that we don't believe uh, that the law is good, and we're against the law. Uh, respond to that. <laughs> I mean, seriously, are you an antinomian? Me? Yeah. Oh, you know, I might be a soft antinomian or something like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> that term. No, the reality is is when you look at it. From this perspective of law and gospel, uh, those that are actually advocating for legalism or advocating for works righteousness actually have a very low view of the law. Yeah, um, they have actually diminished the law to the perspective that they think that they can accomplish it. Mm-hmm. And so this this idea of of um, you know being you know the opposite of antinomian, being a legalist, and and actually being for the law from the perspective that I can actually accomplish it in my own flesh and my own abilities is actually diminishing. It's actually more anti-law than almost this this antinomianism in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's it, actually more it's more subtle. Yeah, you know? that's right. So the the irony and, is is that the person who's oftentimes making the claim that you're an antinomian may and not always and because you got to understand there's several different ways to argue with the antinomian because there's there is a legit antinomian. Um, you right, know, at, right. For instance, if if you want to know what an antinomian is like, you look at um, you look at the ELCA. And their embracing of same-sex marriage and, and right. stuff like those, you know, that the theology that creates that is true antinomianism, right? right. Absolutely. And um, and going back to what you said is is that they hate the law. The law has no function then within the Christian life. So you can sit there and say, "I'm baptized into Christ." And uh, look at I'm free and forgiven, so free and forgiven I can marry my same-sex boyfriend. You know, it that's. That's <laughs> I don't know what that is, but that's not the gospel, and that's not the law. That's true antinomianism, and that's not what we're advocating here. Right. You know right. what we're saying is is that you preach the law in all of its sternness to kill somebody, and and you pull out the flamethrower and everything that Scripture names as a sin. 
you know, and we look at the Decalogue then, you know, to do this, um, you know, you know, the, the scriptures say that you, you're not measuring up, you must change, you must repent, your behavior is not good enough, and, you know, and all you hear is the bony finger of the law screaming at your face and firing, you know, the, the fire of Sinai in your face, and the, our only response to that is, yeah, you're right. You're, mm-hmm. you're right. But see, the thing is, is that on the other side, on the legalistic side, they their solution is kind of odd. It's, sure, I can do that. No problem. You know, just give me a little bit of time. I'll work it out. I'll come up with three easy steps to apply to my life so that I can pull this thing off. And then they they, they pretend that they're doing it. And then they create the facade and they spend a lot of time on the facade, putting paint on the facade, trying to convince everybody that they're actually doing something that they're really not doing. And what that does is it becomes the breeding ground for the worst and most pernicious sins. Yeah, and and, and not only that, it makes it worse when we diminish the law. A couple things. We have to diminish the law to actually make it attainable for us to do it. But then we also have to inflate mankind's abilities, right? So there's there's some things that work. We have to decrease the law, increase mankind's ability so that we can perform and do the law. But then what that does, unfortunately, it actually uh, eliminates and it tears Christ down. And so... You know, they're, they're, these, you know, this kind of brings back to the, the poison, right? So you add a little bit of poison, you know, you diminish the law just a little bit. You add another little bit of poison uh, convincing you that you can do it. Mm-hmm. And the ultimate ramifications is this, is it eliminates Christ yeah. as a savior for seniors. And so, you know, that is why uh, focusing on the little bit of poison is of utmost importance. So what starts off as, as a a small error that hasn't, that hasn't destroyed the heart and the, and the, and the head of, of the body of Christ over time eventually eats away and creates a yeast infection, if you would, that ends up eating away and, and killing the heart and the head. Yeah. Well, in fact, a small poison can decapitate the head. I mean, that's, yeah. that's <laughs> unfortunately, and, but that's not the original intent. You know, one may want to preserve, you know, uh, Christian fellowship or unity or so forth. We don't want to sow at the small stuff. And then we allow that poison to go and we allow that yeast to go and it multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. And, you know, the reality of accepting one of those little poisons, the, the, the doctrine actually will, have ramifications, like I said earlier, the three, four steps down the road. So mm-hmm. back to what we've been talking about, you know, if you diminish the law, increase mankind's ability, you eliminate Christ. Yeah. And that's unfortunately what happens three steps down the road. Yeah. And so kind of summing this all up then, and, you know, in, in not properly distinguishing law and gospel, which seems like a minor thing, you end up with two errors that are flip sides of the same coin. On the one side, you got the ant- real antinomianism. Okay. Right. And then on the flip side of the same coin, then is is pietism. You know, this legalistic, pharisaical pietism. They're both flip sides of the same coin, and Christianity isn't that coin. Right. Right. And I'm I'm trying to recall. I always forget the name of the author, but he has this book called The Seduction of Extremes, and he says that lady lawlessness and lady legalism are both seductresses that seduce us away from God's most dramatic display of love and sacrifice being the cross for sinners. And they do. They both pull us away. And I think it's Luther that famously talks about the poor peasant who's drunk on the road. (laughs) He falls off on the left in the ditch. He gets back on. He falls off on the right. And I think he concludes saying, we don't know if the poor lad ever made it home. (laughs) 
Yeah. And so, yeah. So, so, and the gospel says, come along with that guy and take him home and let him sleep it off, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's uh, the gospel, long gospel as presented in the scriptures, um, are on a whole different paradigm. I don't like using the word paradigm, but it's on a whole different dimension. Yeah. And so it's not somewhere found in between legalism or lawlessness. It's not like a balance between that. It's it's in a different realm altogether um, because both of those uh, have nothing to do with Christ and his cross. Yeah, that's right. And 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 this is where Walther's uh, proper distinction of law and gospel really is helpful. And, uh, and, and that is, is that, you know, in pastoral ministry, I mean, it's a tough job because it's not one size fits all. Um, you know, you, you are tasked with the job of caring for and feeding Christ's sheep. Well, different sheep have different names. They have different personalities. Some bite, some are loving, some are, you know, and, and, and some are comfortable in their sin. And the, the, the right thing to do with the one who's comfortable in his sin is hold back the gospel and let the law just do its work and right when and then right. when they are uncomfortable and realize that they are in need of a savior you give them the gospel immediately right yeah you know yeah and 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 then yeah. on the other side you got the person who's absolutely terrified they know they they read their bible every day they're highlighting all of the to-do verses and they are absolutely terrified and they come you know into your office and they say pastor i think i've committed the unforgivable sin you know and, you know, you want to sit there and just say to them, oh, Lord, bless you. The fact that you are so concerned about this proves you haven't. You know, it's like, you, do you not see this? And so you, with that person, they don't need more law. They need the gospel. Right. And, and so, you know, it, this, you know, word and sacrament, law and gospel ministry is not one size fits all. And there's no easy solution to our sin problem. And, you know, we end up in one ditch or another. And sometimes you got to preach people out of one ditch and pray and, and make sure you don't throw them into the other one. It's not easy. This is, you know, Luther makes a point about, you know, properly dividing law and gospel is very difficult so that the person who actually does it should immediately be given a doctorate of theology, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it comes back to this, you know, and I've often marveled at this. You know, I can preach a sermon uh, in in a church, and this has happened numerous times where I have people come and I'll come to the very back of the church and they shake my hand, and I, you know, you always get these little comments about the sermon or the service, and and this has happened so many times where somebody will come through and they'll kind of give me that look, and they're like, and one person I remember in particular would always say, "Ouch," <laughs> and and or they'd just say, "Ah," you know, they kind of grit their teeth and they'd walk out. And then the next person would come through saying, oh, pastor, thank you. Oh, I needed Jesus today. I needed to hear about forgiveness. It's been such a mess this week. And what's happening? It's law and gospel. You know, the person uh, who, you know, comes through gritting their teeth a little bit disgruntled, they were convicted and they didn't get past it. And so, uh, Lord willing, the word word of law would work on them during the week, bringing them to repentance so that next week or during the week or later on when they're reading their scriptures, they would hear the gospel to be uh, granted faith uh, in Christ. I always always find it fascinating that, you know, you'll always run across this where there's good law gospel preaching happening. Someone will inevitably come up to the pastor and say, How'd you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the pastor looked at him like, 
I didn't. <laughs> what, yeah, what do you yeah. say? He was like, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah, you know, and yeah. so the, you know, sometimes you, you preach the law right, and if, I don't know what it is. It's like the power of the Spirit in the Word. I mean, it goes right to the heart of the person, and it's as if God has got him by the throat and is looking him right. dead in the face and says, this is you. And the pastor is the agent for that, but the pastor is completely unaware of the fact that God's Word is doing that. And so the person coming through the lines, how did you know? I mean, you, you preached yeah. that right to me. It's like you, you've you been looking in my life. Did you hire a private detective or something? And the answer is no. <laughs> you know, this is just what God's Word does, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right on. Yeah, you know, the law is it's, it's inscribed on our hearts, but it's dulled because of our sinful nature. And so when the law comes, it it surfaces the uh, uh, surfaces the conscience that's convicted of all the failings of last week. And so yeah. it, 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 you know, I love, you know, the word is like, you know, Jeremiah says, it's a hammer. It comes there and it smashes. It invades. I love the word invade. The word actually invades. It comes into yeah. uh, the here and it and it uh, wreaks havoc on the old Adam, putting the old Adam to death, mm-hmm. thankfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and then it the word comes and brings this, this invades and brings this whole reality of, of who Christ is and what he's done for you and uh, centers us again in our, the waters of our baptism. Yeah. Um, oh, it's just, it just, it's just awesome. The word of God, I think, and that's the thing is, I think we, we, uh, man, we diminish the, the word of God so much and, and we, we, and we, unfortunately, we resort to all this, this stuff about deeds and not creeds and, and the reality is the word that, 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 that crucifies and resurrects, yeah. and it is powerful, uh, tremendously powerful. Yeah, it, you know, it, you know, as a, as I've been teaching in the church now for you know two decades, and um, you know, I am the most unoriginal guy. You know, when I when I'm teaching a class, I'm the mo- I mean, literally, I I got nothing on my own. I got no speculations. I got nothing to offer people as far as really fancy, well thought out, kind of cool, nuanced theology. I just. Just here's what the text says, and here's what it means. Isn't the text great? Isn't that awesome? And and you know, it's it's wonderful to actually not have uh, any pressure on me to be cutesy or clever or whatever. Just to be to have the freedom to open up a text and to have the privilege to give it a living voice. You know, and knowing that the power is not in me, my clever arguments, any rhetorical skills, but the power is always in the is in the word. And you know, God is the God is working through it. It's His. It's living and active. All of it is theonoustos, and God breathed. And uh, so it doesn't need gimmicks. It just it, it all it really requires is for the pastor to get out of the way and just l- give it a living voice. It's that simple. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I like the illustration of the, the Word of God being a javelin. Um, it, it's what's thrown. Uh, it's huge implications of it being a javelin. Yeah. In, in fact, I'm, I'm actually just trying to pull this up here as, as you're sharing here. Um, the, the metaphor of a javelin, yeah, yeah the, word, uh, the word Torah, uh, which is used for God's Word, uh-huh. uh, it's in, uh, let me, pardon me, for, let me find this here. The noun Torah comes from the verb yara, that means to throw something, a javelin, say, so that it hits the mark. Yeah. And so, and then we see in Hebrews 4.12 that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. The Word of God does stuff. You know, yeah. it, 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 it pierces, it comes. And I think the unfortunate thing is, is uh, what is it, the C.S. Lewis, uh, he talks about that metaphor of the lion. You know, you don't have to 
defend a line. You just need to let it out. Yeah, I think exactly. that's Lewis. Yeah, I think it, that yeah, sounds Lewis-ish. You know, for sure. Yeah, right? and it's it's simply the same thing with the Word of God. It's just it's just preaching the Word, letting the Word do what the Word does, which brings repentance and faith. Yeah, and and, uh, it, it, and unfortunately, unfortunately, many many uh, unfortunately many pastors, and including myself, I have done this many times. We we get you know scared of it. I'll open up a text, you know following uh we follow the church calendar and i'll open up a text and i'm like really i have to preach that this week oh no i don't want to say that <laughs> uh, so so then what i end up doing in my own sinful nature my own fear is i want to take this javelin and i want to cut off the spear off the end and i just want to hand out walking sticks to everybody and just say be happy and that's that's my own sin my own failure as a pastor and yeah. unfortunately many are in the business of doing that taking javelins and making them into walking sticks and then we decorate the walking sticks and we give principles how to use the walking sticks and how to put them into our debt and how we can help them with our limping around and so forth. Oh, my. Uh, yeah, it's a mess. Yeah, whereas this whole idea of the Word of God being a javelin and, and you know, a sword and living and active, it, it kind of gets rid of that, that, uh, that other evangelical way of thinking about God is God is always a gentleman. He would never do anything against my will. You know, and, you know, and that all he's wanting to, me to do is exercise my free will to make a decision to make my life better and all this nonsense, okay? You know, God, <laughs> God is coming at you with a javelin. He's going to spear you in the heart and knock you down and drag you into his kingdom. It's, it's going to be yeah. violent. It's going to be messy. And, yeah. Yeah, and C.S. Lewis himself even said that he came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. Kicking and screaming. Doesn't sound like somebody who, you know, was doing the uh, just as I am without a plea and making a decision. I mean, the reality is this, is that, God, you know, the Lion of Judah is on the prowl. He's on the hunt and he wants you and he's going to forgive yeah. you. You know, that, that you know, you know Get out of the way of that guy because he's coming after you. And thank God he gets us. Yeah. And, and you know, the formula Concord in our Lutheran confessions, uh, I love how this is phrased. I had an individual once said to me, he said, you know, Pastor, you make it sound as if you know, we're just a bunch of blocks of wood or stone that are just laying around that we're inactive. And I said, no, it's actually much worse. <laughs> We're rebelling. We're fighting. We're rebelling. You know, yeah. it's like the old uh, the old hymn. We're prone to wander and prone to leave the God that we love. Yeah. And we're we're, we're like uh, Hosea. You know, like Hosea, like Gomer, his 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 wife. You know, we're, we're chasing after other gods. We're, we're you know, pardon me. We're prostituting ourselves, and yeah. it's God who has to come. Like in the story of Hosea, he needs to come, and he knocks at the door, and he says, "This, I want my wife back." I'm yeah. here for her. I'm redeeming her. I'm taking her with all of her filth, and I'm taking her home because, and I'm going to clothe her and cleanse her yeah. with my garments. It, 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 the gospel is just, it's just so sweet. Yep. You know, it, 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 it and, and, and yeah. Sorry, I'm getting all excited about the gospel, but that's oh, that's <laughs> but great. But it is exciting. It, that's the thing. It's so exciting that it could actually, the, the good news could actually be so good it could save somebody like me. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the unfathomable part about it, because I know for a fact that when I walk into Christ's kingdom, there are going to be guys that are going to be standing. They're going to be in the courtyard or wherever. They're going to say, oh, come on. <laughs> Rose bros here. You have got to be kidding me. You know, and see, that's the that's the scandal of it. It's so bad. It's so good. The good news is so good. It can even save Roseboro. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. And you're going to have to look at me and say, yeah, I'm your brother for eternity. That's right. There, it's going to heads are going to are going to go out of an anguish and eyes are going to roll. And, it's, and that's the beauty of it. 
you know yeah and and what makes and what makes it the gospel great for us when we look at the church the church is not some you know fancied up um you know uh doll that has it all together rather we we come to that marriage feast you know with with you know with our wedding dresses soiled and messed up and yeah. we've been unfaithful and Christ looks at us you know his church and says I love you and I redeemed you and he cleanses us that's right and washes us and and so this idea about you know even for the church trying to make us into something we're not we we are sinners this is the gathering of the sinners and the remarkable thing is that because of Christ shed blood he calls us saints. I, I think that it's just, I cannot get over that. I'll look at my congregation, uh, you know, towards sometimes and I'll say, I'm in the presence of saints, perfect saints because of the blood of the lamb. I mean, that's just remarkable. Yeah. 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 And we're all, we all come into this as equals, all of us. And there isn't a single one of us that can't say, I'm the, I'm the chief of sinners. Every one of us says that. And, right. you know, I, and that's the effect of good law gospel preaching. And the good news is that it can save even the chief of sinners. You know, yeah. it can save me. It can save you. And it's not it. It's he. He can save us. And, you know, he's died on the cross for our sins. He rose again for our justification. He reigns and rules currently. And he's going to come again in glory to judge living in the dead. And that is so much more compelling and interesting to hear about Sunday after Sunday than, you know, some, you know, Bible passage, you know, where they've sandblasted it and strip mined it for three easy principles on how to make your sex life better. I mean, yeah, yeah, I don't even know what that is, but I hear it over and over again in the sermons I review. And it's like, I'm to the point where it's like, if I hear another one of those sermons, I'm going to vomit. You know, it's like, can you tell me about Jesus, please? He is far more interesting than the things you and your wife are doing you know it you know it's yeah yeah you get what i'm saying yeah so all right well uh, pastor richard thank you for your time today and uh, it was a great conversation we, we strayed from the topic a little bit but i think <laughs> i think that o- overall that uh, what we had to say i think will be helpful for people and uh you know especially with the challenges that we face you know in so much of the church today where, where christian pastors are who should be the ones who know better are are the ones who are putting spoons full of Drano in their sermons week after week after week. And, and as a result of it, they're poisoning Christ's sheep. They're taking yeast just enough and they're putting it into, into the, you know, the body of Christ. And now the body of Christ has got a full blown yeast infection. And in this particular case, it could result in death. It's not a good thing. And uh, I appreciate your article. I'm going to put a link up to it at uh, fightingforthefaith.com so that uh, if people would like to read it in its entirety without our commentary, they can do so. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, appreciate it very much, Chris, and uh, appreciate all the work you do at uh, Fighting for the Faith. And uh, keep on being, uh, as I would say in that article, a uh, anti-chocolate chip cookie grouch, I think I said. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, we You're need more of those. every little pixel, you know. <laughs> all right. So. Well, thank you, Pastor Richard. Yeah, you're welcome. So what did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.